Standing up in McKinney, this is, according to Callus, this is episode 504 on the 5th of October. That's 2023 for those of you following along. And hey, let me tell you, as always, if you would like to help me, it makes a difference, like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. Do me a favor, stop what you're doing, subscribe right now. And if you're feeling particularly motivated, you can rate and review this program. But beyond that, you can share this on the social media. I do my best to get it out there. I I share it all over the different groups I belong to. I go to MeWe and Gab. I'm doing what I can do without spending a bunch of money on it. And honestly, I'm not making any money off of this. So I really can't spend money that I'm not making. So (laughs) I need your help. I need to keep growing. Uh, You know, as I said... You know, we just missed our uh, goal of 200,000 by 500, episode 500. We were about 2K short, uh, nothing to sneeze at, being that I was 125 episodes in before I think I had um, 10,000 downloads. So, you know, it is what it is. We are moving on. And today is Thursday. So we're going to review a book. And it's not really a review. It's, it's more of a uh, summary and commentary. Today's book is going to be radical. Okay. Uh, I should read the whole title, Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream by none other than David Platt. Now, I want to be straight with you. When I bought this was years ago, I got the paperback and somebody was telling me about it and it was more of a giving you an opportunity to reframe or to reset your mind, how you see things. I don't think it was necessarily intended for you to actually do all or everything in here, but merely to consider what some of these trade-offs are. Okay. Now, what's interesting to me is, you know, like I said, I read this years ago in the meantime. Now these are people that have uh, little blurbs on his book. We got Danny Aiken, and Russell Moore and Ed Stetzer. Now, for those of you that have been following the progressive mm, Christian movement or the just fundamental failure on the part of our Christian leadership, uh, those would be names that would be somewhat familiar with them, including the author for that matter. And I'm not saying this to, you know, pound on them or, or to dismiss them because in fairness, when the book was written, which uh, was 2010, no less. It was it was a practical thing, right? Hey, look, and, and I'm going to just read you the kind of the opening sentence here to set the tone. Something worth losing everything for. What radical abandonment to Jesus really means. The youngest megachurch pastor in history. While I might dispute this claim, it was nonetheless the label given to me when I went to pastor a large, thriving church in the Deep South, the church at Brook Hills in Birmingham, Alabama. From the first day, I was immersed in strategies for making the church bigger and better. Authors I greatly, or I respect greatly, would make statements like, decide how big you want your church to be and go for it, whether that's 5, 10, or 20,000 members. Soon my name was near the top of the list of pastors with the fastest growing U.S. churches. There I was living out the American church dream. So right away, it's kind of upfront that 
The guy is wanting you to upend your mindset. I have no problem with that. I, I think that's actually good. You, it would be good to take a step back and look at what am I really doing? What what really matters here? What are my priorities? And, and as a matter of fact, it's part and parcel of things that I've talked about. Now, I don't like all of these conclusions. I, I find some of this stuff mm, heavy-handed, maybe, be the way to put it. And again, I read this at least six or eight years ago, so I don't remember all the details. But I'm going to just skim through a couple different things here for you so you get a little bit of a taste for what he's going on here. And again, I'm not looking to beat the guy up. I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. I want to use grace when discussing this. Uh, So we're on page 10 here, and he's talking about the notion of radical abandonment. And um, he's quoting (laughs) the words from an obscure Jewish teacher in the first century. But then he continued, anyone does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, this is taking to another level, picking up an instrument of torture and follow me. This is getting weird, kind of creepy. Imagine a leader coming on the scene today, inviting all of us to come after him to pick up the electric chair and become his disciple. Any takers. And as if this was not enough, Jesus finished his seeker-sensitive plea with pull out your heartstrings conclusion. Any of you who do not give everything up cannot be my disciple. Give up everything you have, carry a cross, hate your family. This sounds a lot different than admit, believe, confess, and prayer. pray a prayer after me. And that's not all. Consider Mark 10. Another potential follower showed up. Here's a guy who's young, rich, intelligent, influential. He's a prime prospect, to say the least. Not only that, he was eager and ready to go. And he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that didn't turn out for the rich young ruler, now did it? (laughs) So again, the idea here is he's setting up what I think is a false dichotomy personally, But again, if you take it for the way I'm choosing to accept this book, it's giving you an opportunity to reset your minds, reset your frame of looking at things and reassess your priorities. And I think that's good and everybody should take advantage of that. Now I'm going to kick over to here to page 14, the cost of non-discipleship. Now he's going over to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian or theologian, excuse me, struggling to follow Christ in the midst of the Nazi rule. Penned one of the greatest Christian books ever in the 20th century. Well, I don't, okay. In it, he wrote the first call that every Christian experiences, the call of abandonment to the attachments of this world. The theme of this book is summarized in one potent sentence. When Christ calls a man, he bids him sell, or he bids him come and die. Bonhoeffer aptly entitled his book, The Cost of Discipleship. Now, I'm going to read a few more excerpts and then I guess I'm going to touch base on a couple of these things. So I'm going to go fast forward a little bit here. As I stood on the mountain, God gripped my heart and flooded my mind with two resounding words. Wake up, wake up and realize that there are infinitely more important things in your life than football and your 401k. Wake up and realize that there are real battles to be fought. So different from the superficial, meaningless battles that you focus on. Wake up to the countless multitudes who are currently destined for Christless eternity. Now, that right there, that's something. I mean, 
if if the whole rest of the book was meaningless, that alone would be something. That that is something to hang your head on. That's something to be proud of. So I, again, there we go. All right, and then I'm going to fast forward a little more here. He's talking about this church that he ran across. Uh, let me see if I can get the uh, location here. I guess it was an Asian church. Uh, it says, you come around the corner and walk into a small room. Despite its size, 60 believers have crammed into it. They are all ages, from precious little girls to 70-year-old men. They are all sitting either on the floor or on stall, small stools, lying shoulder to shoulder, huddled together with their Bibles on their laps. The roof is low, and one light bulb dangles from the middle of the ceiling. The sole illumination. No sound system, no band, no guitar, no entertainment, no cushion seats, no heated or air-conditioned building, nothing but the people of God and the Word of God. And strangely, that's enough. God's Word is enough for millions of believers who gather in house churches just like this one. His Word is enough for millions of other believers who huddle in African jungles, South American rainforests, and Middle Eastern cities. But is His Word enough for us? Again, a very fair question, something that should cause you to reconsider what is it that we expect when we go to church on Sunday or Sunday night or Wednesday evening, whatever your preference is. I know some go Saturday night. The secret church. This is a question that often haunts me when I stand before a crowd of thousands of the people in the church I pastor. What if we took away the cool music? cushion chairs what if the screens are gone and the stage is no longer decorated what if the air conditioning is off and the comforts are removed would his word still be enough for his people to come together at brook hills we decided to try to answer this question we stripped away all the entertainment value and invited people to come together simply to study god's word for hours at a time we called it secret church we set a date one friday night we'd all gather from six Till midnight. For six hours, we do nothing but study the word and pray. We interrupt the six-hour Bible study periodically to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are forced to gather secretly. And we would pray for ourselves that we would learn to love the word as they do. We weren't sure how many would show up for the first evening. By night's end, a thousand people had gathered. The topic of our study was the Old Testament. And after our first try, we decided to do it again and again. And now we have to take reservations because we not contain all the people that want to come. That sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? I I would be interested in something like that. Now, in Texas, not having air conditioning and being in a cramped room, probably not going to be all that pleasant, but I'd give it a go. If we could do it outside, that'd be even better. I, I'd, I'd take the risk of being exposed to the elements. All right, yes, I'm flipping pages here if you can hear that. So, again, I want to go to the crux of what I'm dealing with here. If this is a clarion call to what can you do to strip away all this extra nonsense how can you reorientate to your focus of your church life into following jesus and take away all this extra stuff can you do it would you do it does that interest you again i gotta be honest I go back to the back of the page here, and this is David Platt, the pastor of the Church of Brook Hills, a 4,000-member congregation in Birmingham, Alabama, widely regarded as an exceptional expositor, 
David has traveled and taught around the world. He holds two undergraduate and three advanced degrees, including a doctorate from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. David and his wife, Heather, live in Birmingham with their family. Okay, so right here, I've got this conflict, right? So the guy's got two undergraduates and three advanced degrees, one of which is a doctorate and a 4,000 person church. And he's lecturing me on whether or not I should have a 401k. So that was a struggle for me. I got to admit, I don't know the guy personally. I've never spent any time with him. I've never actually seen him talk on this subject. I have no idea what he does or doesn't do. But I would imagine, I'm just going to guess, that when he travels, he doesn't travel light. And when he's doing his missionary tours, he's probably not just going with a briefcase and a change of clothes. Now, I get it. He's a big deal. People want to see him. They'll pay to see him. I get all of that. But it reminds me of some of these uh, folks that travel around the world that are on the environmentalist kick. You need to do without. You're destroying the earth. But not me. I, I still get my jet. Not not me. I still get to you know have my limousine drive me around. I mean, I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But that, that's kind of the taste in my mouth I'm getting at you know about halfway through the book. I'm page 113 here. We're going to get to the rich man. So caring for the poor is a serious matter. Listen to the story Jesus told of one day to a group of religious leaders who love money and justify their indulgences because of the culture around them. He told them about the rich man who lived in luxury well and ignored the poor man Lazarus who sat outside his gate. <clears throat> He's covered with sores and surrounded by dogs eating the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. And they die the rich man goes to hell, the poor man to heaven. The rich man, we can see, could see into heaven. He called out for relief from the agony of hell. And the reply came, son, remember in your lifetime, you received the good things. Well, Lazarus, Lazarus received the bad things, but he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between you and us is a great chasm that has been fixed so that you can for those who want to go from here to you cannot, and those who would like to cross over from there to us, they cannot. So this story illustrates God's response to the needs of the poor. The poor man's name is Lazarus, literally meaning God is my help. Sick, crippled, and impoverished, he received the compassion from God. But just because somebody is poor does not make him righteous before God and therefore fit for heaven. At the same time, a quick perusal of the scripture shows that God hears, feeds, satisfies, rescues, defends, raises up, and secures justice for the poor who trust in him. Going a little further forward, the rich man in the story is not in hell because of the money. Instead, he is in hell because he lacked faith in God, leading to him indulge in luxuries while ignoring the poor outside his gate. As a result, his earth was his heaven, and eternity became his hell. Then he asks the question, who do you identify more with? So let us take a moment now, and I've heard this multiple times, and I I don't like it because it comes across as a guilt trip. Now, it can be entirely technically accurate, but who cares? Well, you know... We in Collin County are among the richest counties in the state of Texas. Indeed, we are among the richest in the entirety of the United States. And if we count the global world in there, we're in the 1% of the 1%. 
Okay, fair enough. But nobody accounts as to why those other countries are in such poor shape. Nobody ever considers that those other people are in a situation that's beyond their control, mostly because of the leadership that they have that abuse them and take advantage of them. And at least in the United States and most of Europe, our people, the people, have pushed back enough that we get a little piece of the action. But you're supposed to feel guilty, you know, because you have an air-conditioned house. You're supposed to feel terrible that, you know, while you're both working and then giving away roughly half of what you make to government, which then gives it to other people that don't work, you're supposed to feel guilty about that. And while I realize there are those that are filthy rich, right? The the pigs, if you will, from Animal Farm. I realize that. I would much rather deal with the fact that they exist and ignore the fact that they exist so long as they don't cause me troubles just as much as I have compassion for the people that have nothing. But that doesn't mean that you should come and look to take from somebody that has something and give it to somebody that has nothing because in the end, neither ends off better in the long run. Now, if that rich person or the slightly more wealthy person just chooses to invest or to give of their time, their money, whatever, to somebody that has less than them, that's a good thing. That's what the Bible encourages. That's what, that's what we all believe is. But this is a guilt trip in part. That's not a willing giver. Now, again, if I choose to re- look at this as a reframing exercise, right, to consider where you are in comparison to where you could be, that's all well and good. So let's continue. What scares me most, though, is that we can pretend we are the people of God while we comfortably turn a blind eye to these words in the Bible and go on in the most affluent model of Christianity in the church. We can even be successful in our church culture for doing so. It may be a sign of success and growth when we spend millions on ourselves. Look how big the church is coming, they'll say. Did you see all the stuff they have? I think we actually believe what we're doing is biblical. Again, he has a point here. But again, I would say, that's the church leadership. Now, yes, we as individuals that go to certain churches, we like to be a little comfortable. We like to have the air temperate. We like to have proper sound. We like a seat that's not hard and chafing on our buttocks. But I don't think any of us expect to be in the lap of luxury when we go to a church service. I don't I don't expect that any of us, you know, expect to... I, I don't know. I don't know that anybody has some some kind of crazy expectations that I know. Now, that may exist, but I've never seen it. So we go on, and then he talks about the notion of selling all that you have and truth and love. And it's hard for rich man, right? And again, all of this is fair. It's a good critique, And then he does eventually get to the free to give, right? And let's see. Oh, let's. Hmm. So I'm getting towards the end of the book here. And uh, let's see here. I'm going to go to page, let's call it 136. <sighs> let's see. 
This is our chance. We could literally start from the bottom and responsibly rebuild our lives more on necessities and less on luxuries. In the days to come, however, we would quickly squander that opportunity. By the time we moved to Birmingham, where I would begin pastoring, we found ourselves in the throes of buying a house and filling it with stuff. The lure was strong. Now, we didn't buy a mansion, but we did purchase more than we needed. And more space than the house, the more stuff is necessary to fill it. It did not take long to find ourselves with twice as much as we had in New Orleans. In the eyes of the world, even the church world, we had reached the promised land. But I could not get rid of the sinking feeling that we were better able to live out the gospel when we had less. The lesson I learned is the war against materialism in our own house is exactly that, a war. The constant battle to resist temptation, to have more luxuries, to acquire more stuff, to live more comfortably, requires a strong and steady resolve to live our gospel in the middle of the American dream that identifies success as moving up the ladder, getting a bigger house, purchasing a nice car, buying better clothes, and eating finer food, and acquiring more things. My wife and I decided that we're going to wage the war. We now find ourselves in what seems to be a never-ending process of identifying necessities and removing luxuries. We put our house up for sale. We began looking for something smaller and simple. We began the process of adoption again, concluding that our savings were better spent on that which was more important to the heart of God. We are attempting to form a budget that frees up as much possible to give away. Things are just the beginning. We have so far to go. So many questions remain unanswered. What kind of car should I drive? How many clothes do I really need? What luxuries does God intend for my family to savor? What luxuries does God invite us to sacrifice? If we have savings, which is the line between responsible saving, which the Bible certainly advocates, and irresponsible hoarding, which the Bible clearly condemns. How does that affect the way we approach our investments, retirement account, life insurance, How much is wise to save for a potential future where brothers and sisters around me, as well as people who haven't heard the gospel, are threatened by a present need? They're not easy questions. I do not presume to have all the answers, nor do I claim that there are legalistic measures by which we should answer these questions. We must avoid the error of imposing upon ourselves and others laws that are not commanded in Scripture. At the same time, we should not stop us from asking the questions and letting these questions drive us to Christ. Now, here's a, you know, this is, this is good. And he's admitting that this is a struggle. This is something he's working on. This is where he's going with it. And that's all well and good. But that was his choice. He and his wife sat down and said, we can give these things up. We should do these things. But he's kind of inferring that if you don't follow suit, you're the weaker brother. But, he, you know, he leaves the, the quibble word of, well, we're not going to force anybody. It shouldn't be a legalistic thing. <sighs> well, it's easy, it's easy for the numbers and statistics regarding the poor and needy to seem cold in distance. The idea of billions in poverty, 26,000 children dying from starvation or preventative disease as we lay our heads on pillow tonight seems hard to imagine. Now, again... I say to you, this is largely caused by other governments, by other people's bad behavior, by things that are way beyond our control. Now, let's just say hypothetically, we got the five richest people in America, right? You go to Musk, go to the uh, guy from Amazon, uh, you go to the uh, guy that runs Facebook and Bill Gates and, and Warren Buffett for good measure. 
and you tell them all, we want half of everything you have as far as your assets as money. And we're going to give it to people who desperately need things. How are you going to do it? How are you going to ensure that those people that actually need it, get it? How are you going to go about the process to ensure that it's properly distributed? How are you going to determine that they actually have a need that is worthy of that? It's kind of crazy to think about it. Now, you know, in the book of Acts, it does talk about people living in common and choosing to look out for each other's needs and really not have anything. And I think it's fair to say they all expected Christ to come back immediately, right? You know, maybe it was six months, maybe it was a few years, but they didn't expect to go on for two millennia without Christ's return. And as a result, they figured out, okay, well, maybe maybe we should invest and we should do certain things and we should look after our people in a different way because we're going to be at this for quite some time. So maybe, I, maybe I'm missing something here, but it kind of kind of seems like He's in a crisis of conscience here, and he's putting it on everybody else. So let's go on to chapter 7 here. There is no plan B. Why going is urgent, not optional. American Christians, we celebrate the idea that all men are created equal. This is a statement from the Declaration of Independence, grounded in biblical teaching that every person in the world is formed in the image of God, therefore has an intrinsic worth. It's a beautiful idea. Subtly, though, This equality of persons shifts to an equality of ideas. Just as every person is equally valued, so is every idea equally valid. Applied to faith, that means in a world where different people have different religious views, all views should be treated as fundamentally equal. In this system of thinking, faith is a matter of taste, not of truth. The cardinal sin, therefore, is to claim that one person's belief. And again, this is kind of ironic scenes where he goes later in life, or at least the people that he spends time with how about that all right so we're going to jump from there truth number one all people have a knowledge of god truth number two all people reject god truth number three all people are guilty before god truth number four all people are condemned for rejecting god and truth number five god has made a way of the salvation for the lost truth number six people cannot come to god apart from faith in christ All this is spot on. I mean, I've got no issues here. Truth seven, Christ commands the church to make gospel known to all peoples. Therefore, there's no time to waste. That was the last truth. All right. Then he talks a little bit about living while dying is gain. Talks about troop carrier or luxury liner. Got a lot of different things here. And again, it's been a long time since I read this. And now he's going to talk about the life lived upside down. Chapter nine. And he said, theories that remind or that remain theories until they're tested. That is the reason for an experiment. You discover a claims reality, the more likely are to read to adjust to your perspective. We call it the radical experiment. The experiment is for one year. Now I realize such a timeline does not coincide with conventional wisdom, contemporary growth, church growth, philosophers tell me in magazines, articles, gimmicks, flyers. To be effective, we must organize everything we do in no more than six to eight week segments. Churchgoers today want short-term commitments with long-term benefits. All that is true. 
So, hmm. Talks about uh, David Brainard, William Carey, and John Hyde. Talks about the sacrifices and the different things they did. And he said, what if long-term benefits are actually reserved for long-term commitments? Even the world believes this. Why else would graduating high school seniors commit at minimum four years and thousands of dollars to further education? Why else would law and medical students suffer through tireless work and grueling schedules? Why else would musicians practice their instruments day after day? Why else would athletes train year after year for a sport? People make long-term commitments all the time on a desire for a long-term benefit. So my challenge to you is to use one year of your life to radically alter the remainder of your life. I believe it is important, though, that you focus on that one year because there are some things that you can do for a year that you may not be able to sustain for multiple years, and you should not postpone it any longer. Okay, so now this is getting into the nuts and bolts, right? And it's fair to say, up to this point, it's been a lot of talk. Now it's action. Pray for the entire world for a year. Read through the entire word. Sacrifice your money for a specific purpose. Spend your time in another context. Sorry, I suppose you didn't want my sneeze there. Spend, oh, I'm sorry. Commit your life to multiplying community. I believe, no, I know that if you stick to these challenges for a whole year, you'll find yourself coming alive like never before. You know the incomparable thrill of being part of what God is up to, where you live and around the world. So, I want to say here, at this point, I'm going to, I'm going to set this down. I'm nearly 30 minutes in, and I want to just revisit one thing here. I appreciate what he's doing here. But I would suggest that perhaps, perhaps for most people, we should start smaller. Instead of praying for the entire world, pray for your community, your local community. Doesn't matter if it's your church, your city, your county, or even your state. I live in Texas, and we're very fond that we're the best state in the union, and that may very well be true in many, many measures. We have a very rich Christian tradition, but it also has led heavily to churchianity. If you're not sure what that means, you can look it up. Number two, read through the entire word. Now, I will tell you that the last three or four years, I've been doing the audio Bible and I've been listening to it at uh, faster than normal speed and making an effort to go through two or three days worth every day that I can so that I finish the Bible usually seven to nine months in over the course of the year so that it's done rationalizing that the more I take it in, the more it's going to stick. Now I had the benefit of a childhood in the Iwana program and I memorized a ton of scripture and it's, it's in my head. But if you ask me to quote it to you, I'm going to fail. If you ask me to remember the quote address, I'm going to fail, but I know it's there so that when I'm listening to the scripture, even at the speed, you know, 1.5 speed or whatever, I hear it and I'm like, Oh, I know this. And I, and I follow along mentally with it and I feed that in and I do other things. So 
while I enjoy reading and I read a lot, I'm not taking the time to actually read the scripture itself. The audiobook's kind of been a cheat for me, but it's a cheat that I utilize because I do a lot of driving for work and reading and driving, not a good mix. So maybe I need to fairly look at how do I redo this? Sacrifice your money for a specific purpose. Now I will tell you that I do sacrifice money in the sense that I, I give to four different missionaries as well as my church. It's not a lot of money. I'm not bragging. I'm not telling you this to pat myself on the back, but it's something that we're already doing. My wife and I committed to doing this as soon as we were able, and we've been as faithful as we can with it. It says, spend your time in another context. Well, that's a challenge. <laughs> the The shortcoming or the thing that I, you know, I have a specific thing I want to invest time in this next year. I'm not going to get into it because it's kind of personal, but look, Everybody's got something that they could choose to spend time in. And number five, commit your life to a multiplying community. Okay, so he's using this in the context of a church or Christianity. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. But I'm going to go one step further. Based upon previous uh, episodes, you know that I don't believe that knowledge is power. It is the application of that knowledge that is power. And I've heard that directly from Chris Ann Hall multiple times. The application of that knowledge is power. So I ought to tell you is it's all well and good to know your Bible. It's all well and good to know your constitution. It's all well and good to know your politics. But if you're not sharing it and if you're not building on that and you're not spending time with other people, even if they don't agree with you, you're not building your community. You're not building your network. You're not involved with those around you. So I'd encourage you. And again, I I, I didn't want to beat this book up because I choose to look at it as a way to reset your mind, as a way to reconsider how you're living your life. I don't necessarily agree with all the conclusions. I don't, some of the people that he's associated with in this book have clearly gone in places that I'm not comfortable with. That being said, it doesn't mean that that book written in 2010 isn't applicable. It doesn't give you a way to think about things. Now I've lowered the standard that he throws down to make it directly applicable to you and I start with that. And if you master that over a year, then go for the whole world. That's fine. Or or add more time or, or add more community or whatever. Go for it. But you got to start small, aim small, miss small. And I, again, that was kind of my commentary and uh, synopsis, if you will, on the book radical by, David Platt. And if you enjoyed this, if you thought it was worth your time, do me a favor, like, share, and subscribe. There we go. If there's a thumbs up somewhere, you can do that too. And again, the rating and reviewing is highly helpful to getting this spread around. You know, that's all I ask. And as I say, thank you for joining me. I'll see you again the next day. And until then, I'll see you on the other side.